1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> we are going through a Christmas series right now where we were looking uh, the, two weeks ago in Genesis 3, this past week uh, in Genesis 22, and today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. And as we're going through this sermon series, we're, we're tracing uh, and in a lot of ways, the offspring, the, the promised offspring, uh, pointing us ultimately to Jesus. So as you're turning to 1 Samuel 17, just a couple announcement reminders for you. First is our Christmas Eve service in a couple days. Um, we have two services, one at 2, one at 3.30. They're identical, so uh, pick the one that you want to come to and come be a part of our Christmas Eve services. It's right at an hour, maybe even a little bit shorter, so won't take out too much from you from the day. Uh, and we have kids in here. There's no, no planned children's programming that day. So come be here, uh, here a part of that. Bring your kids with you, um, and we'll have a kid's time for them and some uh, other kid-centric stuff. We'll sing a lot, and I have a short sermon as well. So uh, make that part of your, uh, your, your Christmas Eve. The second announcement I have is on uh, Thursdays, from nine to eleven, we have people that come and clean the church. We don't we don't hire out a cleaning service that saves us a lot of money, but we do have uh, people in the church that are awesome servants that come and serve every every uh, Thursday from nine to eleven, eleven thirty or so. And if you would love to serve the church in that way, uh, if you happen to have those couple hours open on Thursdays, they come be a part of it. So we we definitely could use some more help on Thursdays. Uh, cleaning the church, vacuuming the floors, vacuuming the seats, um, mopping the floors, etc. Every Thursday, even if it's every other Thursday or, or once every month or whatever you can do on Thursdays, if you want more information, just come talk to me and I'll, I'll help you understand how all that works. But Thursdays, usually starting around nine, um, that would be a great opportunity for you to serve if you're looking for a place that you can serve remedy. So um, if you have, like I said, if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, stand with me. We're going to read. First Samuel 17. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11 to start us off. We're actually going to go through most of the chapter, uh, but we're going to start by starting the public reading from 1 through 11. Um, starting verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Soko and Ezekiah in Ephes Damin. And Saul said to the men of Israel, that were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and his armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like the weaver's beam and the spear's head, 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine who are, um, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this morning as we look at this text that you would um, send your Holy Spirit 
to come now and teach us and um, be with be with us in these moments. We pray that we would get the the uh, understanding from the text of the Old Testament, but more than that, that you would push us on to see how it points us to Christ, and that as we see that, um, you would cause our hearts to be moved with joy. You would cause our hearts to be moved with love and adoration towards Christ. God, I pray for help this morning. I pray that you would please uh, speak through me and help us all see Christ in this text and rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a seat. So, um, as I said, this is uh, week three as, uh, of the Christmas series that we've been going through. It started a couple weeks ago as Chris preached in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and one of the key texts that helps us know what's going on is G- Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where uh, after the fall had happened, the, the curse was being pronounced. And in Genesis three fifteen it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And that, that keys us in that now we're looking for her offspring. We're wondering who this offspring is going to be. And this this prophecy was, was given. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, um, which tells us uh, that there's going to be um, an offspring of the woman that's going to ultimately be the savior, the one that's going to make all things right. And so uh, as readers now, as we're reading through Genesis, we're looking for this promised offspring that's going to be the one that's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And so he's going to set all things right. And so Chris, as he was uh, preaching, took us through Genesis 3 and helps us uh, open up and understand that there's an offspring coming. And now as we're looking, we, look, we got to last week to Genesis 22. And all of the Old Testament is in search of this, this offspring that's going to be the one that set things right. And last week we looked at Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac wondering if the offspring is going to continue. And it does. God comes and uh, <coughs> delivers Isaac and the offspring continues and the, the coming Messiah is going to keep coming. And so are going to going to be fulfilled this promise of God, which of course we knew was going to happen. And so now as we're reading through the old Testament, we're reading, looking for this offspring Messiah that's going to come and crush the head of the snake. And so the design of a Christmas series is in the same way as you're reading through the old Testament with anticipation and rejoicing, hoping in this coming Messiah Uh, The Advent series is designed to do the same thing as it pushes you towards December 25th, where you are pushing your heart to rejoice in the coming Messiah, the coming Christ who is born to give us salvation. And so um, the Advent season is in a much similar way designed like the whole Old Testament people looking for this coming Messiah, this offspring is designed for us to do the same thing and have our hearts rejoice at the coming of the Messiah. Now, to get us from where we were in Genesis 22 to 1 Samuel, here's basically in a couple sentences uh, what happens. And so um, you have um, God choosing Abraham to be the father of Israel, and he preserves through his sons and his grandsons this line. Uh, And then there's numerous Israelites, and then they move over to Egypt uh, following Joseph, and they're eventually enslaved in Egypt. And so uh, they want to get out of slavery. And so Moses um, is raised up, and he leads them out of slavery back to the promised land, right to the cusp of the promised land. And Moses dies and Joshua, uh, salvation leads them into the promised land. Uh, and when they go into the promised land, they enter the period of the 
Judges, which we've studied through the book of Judges right before the Kings. Uh, And during the period of the Judges, you have this kind of picture story of the book of Ruth where Ruth and, and Boaz have Obed, Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David. And so uh, that brings us to who David is. And so we know that David is uh, the king. Um, he isn't yet in this particular text, but we know that he's going to be. As a matter of fact, if you look in First Samuel 16, uh, the Lord said in 16 verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Saul has not been a good king. And so he sends him over to the house of Jesse, um, whom we just talked about. And he's like, give me your, let me see your sons. And Samuel's like, I want to see your sons, Jesse, because you've got a son that's going to be the king. Okay, not this guy, not this guy, not this guy. And he goes through six and he's like, I, do you have any more? Because none of these, none, none of these are the ones ones uh, that God said, if you get to verse 12, it says, and he sent and brought him in talking about David. He was ruddy and had a beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So in, in 16, before we get to this fight, this kind of famous text of David and Goliath, um, He's already been anointed to be the king of Israel one day. Saul still is, uh, which brings us to David. But nevertheless, we're still reading uh, through the Old Testament wondering, okay, is, is there going to be... Um, is there going to be this offspring? Perhaps David's going to be this king, this offspring, the one that's going to be the, the Messiah. He's not, but he's going to have a promise made to him when you get to Second Samuel that... Through him, this promised offspring Messiah would come. So we are at 1 Samuel 17, and I just want to give a little bit of a bio on David before we, before we get into the, the meat of the text, just to, so you know who he is, just in case. So David was the second king of Israel. We had, Saul's the king right now, but he's going to become king. He was born maybe around 1040 BC in a very humble uh, beginnings. He was a warrior. He was a writer. He was an instrumentalist. Um, and he also had some highlights. This, some of this intros from whenever we were studying through first Kings, that very first part, whenever first Kings mentions him, uh, one of the highlights, obviously is chapter 17, which we're looking at today where he shows great faith in defeating Goliath, but also, uh, he was, <clears throat> Um, another highlight of his life is whenever he handles the whole Saul situation, waiting to become king. He, another good thing is his desire to want to build the temple for God. Also, he has obviously a reverence for God. He's a man after God's own heart uh, is how he's described. And probably the, the best um, highlight of his life is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Uh, this is where God comes to him and, and says this. Um, in all places where I have moved and all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make, here it is, I will make from you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth. And then he's going to continue in and he's going to tell us once we get to 13, this amazing promise. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a, uh, a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's, I will 
Um, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, as readers of the Old Testament, we know when we see that word offspring that's keying us in on, okay, this is important. That's the Messiah. That's the Genesis 3.15 Proto-Evangelium Messiah that's supposed to continually come. Here it is. So now we know, oh, it's through David. It's through David. And he shall build a house for my name and he'll establish the throne of his kingdom for ever. And so as we, as you keep reading, we see that this offspring now who's gone from, um, he's gone from Adam all the way to Abraham. As we keep going, now it's going through the house of David. And so we're, we're keyed in on this, uh, this, this guy, David, because we know the offspring is going to come from him. Now, David also, as we're looking at this text, uh, who's going to be in chapter 17 presented, uh, in a very positive sense, uh, he was, he also had low lives from the situation from Uriah Bathsheba to how he handled Absalom's sister and Absalom later on in second Samuel, the census that he took, uh, all the many wives he had. So he had, he had low lights in his life as well. So as we read 17 and he's kind of lifted up as this awesome figure, we shouldn't lift him up too high because he's still just a man. He's still just a man. Um, but whenever he was confronted with the sin, as we see in second Samuel 12, uh, he, repents in front of Nathan, the prophet. If you read Psalm 51, you can see the, the repentance. Uh, so as we're reading here in first Samuel 17, and we see how awesome, awesome David is one of the ways that, uh, we can mistakenly read kind of the characteristics, the good characteristics of David and think, okay, uh, and, or in any old Testament narrative, I see this, this character. What I want to do is take the good characteristics of this character presented to me in the old Testament and take those good characteristics and just kind of want to have those things in my life. And now that's what I'm supposed to do is see the good stuff. I'm going to dare to be like David. Um, and it's not really the point of the text is to dare to be David. Um, instead the point of the text as all old Testament texts is to help us understand that there's a coming Messiah to look for the traces of the coming Messiah to see that all these people were hoping in this, this promised offspring, just like we are um, on the other side of the cross where we're on this side, which is to point us to Jesus. And so the, the point of Old Testament text ultimately is to cause our hearts to see, <clears throat> to see Christ and rejoice in him and put our hope in him, not just see the text and think, oh, well, this is how I'm supposed to modify my behavior to be like David. Instead, it's to like all texts to point to help us want to look at Christ and rejoice in, in the fact that he's our Messiah, just like he's theirs. And so the old Testament is about Jesus, not ultimately about giving us moral lessons. So, um, we're going to, uh, jump into first Samuel 17 and we could, we could do a bunch of different stories of David, but this is the one that we're going to look at, uh, and see how David, we could look at others and see how David prefigures or, foreshadows Christ, uh, for example, as Saul, who was opposing him, trying to hurt him, just as David shows mercy to Saul, Jesus shows mercy to us as David's, um, David's strength was delivered, uh, helped his family, deliver his family in captives in first Samuel 30, Jesus, uh, strength delivers us out of our captivity to sin. David unites the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, uh, in a, an amazing way. In the same way, he prefigures Christ who unites Jews and Gentiles with a greater unity. So there's, we could go on. There's lots of ways that, that David does this, um, and points us to Christ. But today we're going to look at this particular text. So starting in, uh, chapter 17, we see that Israel's 
camping there and you get to verse four and it says there came from out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion, a champion. And this is the Hebrew ish, a man between two basically means a person who on the part of his own people undertook to determine the national quarrel by engaging in single combat with a chosen warrior, the hostile army. So you've got the Philistines and they put forward their champion and he's looking at all of Israel and he's antagonizing them and berating them and say, bring your person so that the two of us can fight and we'll, we'll fight on behalf of our people. And when we fight, uh, whoever wins, wins for the whole thing. This is representative warfare where he represents for the Philistines. He's calling for the Israelites to bring their person as a representative. And when they fight, they fight um, on behalf of everybody. And so as we going through chapter 17 and representative warfare is kind of the theme of what we're looking at, we should realize that this is actually our theme. Representative warfare is the Christian's theme because Christ is the one who steps in front for, of us. Uh, and Jesus is the one who takes our place in fighting and defeats Satan's sin and death for us. And so in the same way, David is going to represent Israel to fight against Goliath. Um, we can already see how this points us to Christ because that's what he's done for us. Um, he steps in the place and fights for us, fights the battle for us that, that we don't have to fight now um, and ultimately brings victory for us. And so as we're going through this, uh, uh, the main idea that I want us to see is not just a story of David being courageous, but instead there's a larger theme that's going on, which isn't, isn't really about David at all. As a matter of fact, David tells us what it's about. So uh, verse 47, I think, helps us give us kind of the theme of the chapter. So a lot of times in the Bible, if, whenever you're reading through the, the, the chapter, uh, sometimes it's in the beginning, sometimes the middle, sometimes the end, that one verse, uh, if you kind of bring it up, it helps kind of give the, the overall context of everything that you're looking at. And I think that's what's going on in verse 47. Verse 47 is the overall kind of big picture uh, understanding of to understand the whole chapter. So verse 47, David says, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so the big idea is not that David's the savior of Israel, instead that the Lord is the savior of Israel. And so the Lord saves and delivers the big idea. So as we're going through the text, we're going to see um, five different reminders or five ways that the Lord is going to save Israel. And as we're looking at kind of um, the, the narrative of the text of First Samuel 17, the narrative of First Samuel 17 is really also representative of the meta narrative of Scripture and how David stands in the place um, and through the Lord's help saves Israel, how Jesus has stood in the place and saved us. And so the narrative of first Samuel 17 is representative of the larger meta narrative of all scripture. And so as we're going through the five different points today, uh, they'll be about the text, but they'll also be about the meta narrative of scripture, how Jesus has saved us. So the Lord saves and provides is the theme. So we have representative warfare here in verse four, where Goliath stands forth as the champion, uh, saying, come out here, come fight me. And you can see in verse four that it says his height was six cubits and a span. That's not something that we use, but a cubit is probably 16 inches and a span's like five or six inches. And so that's close to eight feet. So he is seriously massive. Some, some older texts say four cubits and a span, which makes him more like five, four. 
instead of eight feet and significantly less scary. Uh, it's instead of bigger than Shaq, it's like Muggsy Bogues. And you're just like, well, that's not really scary. Uh, so I don't think that text is right. I think it's probably six cubits and a span because the text as it's written is warning us to think that this guy is really scary and huge. He's close to eight feet tall, uh, not not five three. Um, so uh, the the six cubits in a span is likely more uh, accurate. And you can see here that he's he's huge. He's a big man, and then it gives all this description um, of all these things that he's wearing and how big he is and how scary he is. And he stood. And basically, what you can see in verse eight through eleven is just how defiant he is. He's belligerent. He taunts. He badgers, and he's instilling great fear in the lives of the Israelites. And so verses 1 through 11 kind of sets it up, helping us see that Goliath is strong, someone to be scared of, uh, that he taunts them, he badgers them, he's, he's belligerent, and he instills great fear into the lives of the Israelites. And in the same way that uh, Israel now is fearful and has no hope because of this great giant, uh, in the same way, this is what sin is for us. So uh, the first thing is, as Goliath was quite belligerent, uh, foe that is not going to be defeated naturally or easily, so our sin is to us. So humanly speaking in verses 1 through 11, Goliath being eight feet tall saying, send out your one person, no matter who they send out to this eight foot tall person, he's going to destroy them. And in the same way for us in the meta narrative scripture, Goliath is representative of sin against us. And if we on our own strength, on our own power, try to do something that defeats sin, it's impossible. It's impossible. We cannot on our own strength overcome uh, sin or even the punishment or penalty of sin. And this is what we see in the first uh, 11 verses, is how uh, the meta-narrative is being played out through Goliath, just like sin is, that we can't, we can't do anything. He's six cubits in a span. He's, a, he's literally a giant. Um, as you get to verse 12, uh, that brings us to the next kind of section. Now, David was a son of the Ephrathite in Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons, And in the days of Saul, the man who was already old and advanced in years, the three oldest sons, Jesse, had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of these three sons that went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest of all these. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward to take a stand morning in evening. So for 40 days, uh, David's kind of going back and forth, bringing the brothers. We can see here some food. Uh, his dad singing him back and forth to feed the sheep and come up here. And so for 40 days, this is happening, which ultimately is not just uh, becoming kind of a long, drawn out battle, but it's also starting to put uh, economically. Uh, Israel in jeopardy because if all these men are at the front line and they're not at their homes cultivating their crops and getting all the things kind of going, then they're going to start losing some of that. And so they're, uh, they're in jeopardy of losing the battle here, but they're also economically in jeopardy now for this continually going on and on and on. So it's becoming an increasing uh, difficult situation. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers, take them some, some cheese pizzas, take for your brothers an ephah, this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their, their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So he deliver the, deliver these things up there. Uh, and so ultimately what we see here is God is going to sovereignly work through Jesse. Now, Jesse, the father is saying, David, I want you to go. 
And so God sovereignly by sending, uh, by Jesse sending David is going to ultimately be uh, a, an act of grace, of sovereign grace uh, to them. Because had David not gone, well, obviously God could have delivered anyway. But this is the sovereign means by which God chooses to deliver by, by in, um, causing Jesse to say, David, I want you to go up there and do these things. And as he's there, as he sees what's happening and David's, you know, just, he's just delivering stuff. He's just the delivery boy. But because he's there, he sees all that's going on and he becomes deeply provoked and his spirit for Israel and for the name of, of God. Like he, on behalf of God, he becomes righteously angered to hear this man down talk Israel and, and ultimately down talk God. And as he hears all that, he becomes righteously angered and says, we've got to do something. Somebody's got to say or do something here. So God providentially works through Jesse uh, to help send David to hear this, to answer Israel's dilemma. Now, remember, uh, as we already seen in first Samuel 16, that David's already been anointed as the king. And so God's going to use this anointed king here. Um, so in verse 19, uh, we want to read 19 and that'll help us see our second point. And Saul, uh, now Saul and they all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the, with the keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse had, as Jesse had commanded him, he came to the encampment of the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel... And the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran out to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. They're out there. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came out, um, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And here it is. And David heard him. And so. The words were, which we see back in verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so David hears this and he becomes provoked on behalf of Israel and on behalf of God. And this bothers him greatly. And so uh, all the way up until this point, we can see how God is sovereignly, how he's good and how he's acting on behalf of Israel to bring about the defeat of Goliath. So that's that's number two. The Lord saves and delivers. How is it that he does this? The Lord is sovereign and good. And he acts to bring about certain defeat, which he promises to provide. He promises. So here he's, he's doing that by engaging Jesse to send David for David to be there and hear these things and become righteously anger, etc. And in the ultimate meta narrative, he's done this by sending the offspring, the promised Proto-evangelium from Genesis three fifteen uh, offspring, and he's if you trace it all the way through, that leads us to Jesus, and so he's good by also uh, sending us Christ to be our Savior, um, in a much larger scale than what than what uh, than what David is for these particular people. So we see here that David hears all this, uh, but here's the response: <clears throat> whenever the Israelites hear the the belligerent uh, words of, of, of Goliath. This is what they do in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. So they have, they realize humanly speaking that there's no, nothing that they can do to defeat Goliath and there's no way that they're going to be able to win. And so they're scared. And verse 25 says this, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel 
and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make uh, his father's house free in Israel. Then David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Uh, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so basically what we see here is that uh, Israel saying, step right up. There's a prize for anybody that kills Goliath. You get, you get Saul's daughter and some money. And David hears this. And uh, the prize isn't necessarily the, the reason why he wants to defeat this. As you see in the text, it, the prize is the secondary thing. Saul's daughter and money, that's not really what bothers him. What bothers him is how Goliath thinks that he can basically trash talk God and his armies. You can see it there again in verse uh, 26. And David said, what shall be done? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Like, who does he think he is to go up against Yahweh? Does he think he's stronger than God? Right now, it looks like, humanly speaking, that God's weak and the Philistines are strong. This isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be because Yahweh's way strong. He could crush him at any moment. And we, I don't like the way this looks. And so um, <clears throat> from that, it provokes uh, Eliab. Uh, in verse 27, the people answer him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? We know why, because Jesse sent him. Um, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Eliab here believes he knows the motives of David and he's reading this wrong. So uh, just as a side note, you generally don't know the motives of people uh, and what's going on in their heart unless you ask them. But he thinks he does um, or if information has brought it that you actually can see it, but he doesn't know for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? But it was not a word basically like, so here's what's going on. Um, Eliab, like, uh, the older brothers of Joseph who were jealous of Joseph is also David's brother. He's jealous of him and questions his motives here. And David's like, uh, I don't know, really know what's going on with you. Um, What's going on is that he was wanting to be anointed in 16 and he wasn't. And so he's, he doesn't like what David and David's like, uh, I don't know what you're upset about. I'm just asking the question about this guy who thinks he can talk to God's people like this. And so I I don't really like what's going on. Um, so verse 31, here's what happens when the words, uh, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. Uh, David basically says, we got to do something. And so David said to, um, said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David steps up and is like, if since nobody's stepping up, um, I'm going to step up because I can't have uh, these words be spoken against Yahweh in this way. I'm go- I'll go and I'll go fight him. So Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're just a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. He's like significantly older than you. He's been fighting way longer and you're still just a boy like what or a young, a young man. Why would you want to do this? But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear, he took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has been has struck down both lions and bears. I know you're thinking it in your head. 
Go ahead. Lions and tigers and bears. We're not going to sing it. All right. Uh, so I, I've struck down all these. Uh, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So that brings us to the third thing, which is this. The Lord has been faithful and trustworthy in the previous experiences of David um, to be to make him have this kind of confidence. Like I, I've, I've seen that the Lord has anointed me in first Samuel 16. I've also had these times where I've had to face lions and I've had to face bears. And the Lord is the one who delivered me. You can see that as he said in verse 37, David doesn't say, Hey, I'm pretty awesome. I mean, I can beat up lions and bears. So surely I can take this giant. He says, God has done it through me. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the deer and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So we can see that there's amazing, great faith of David, not in himself, but in God. He knows that God can deliver him. So the point as you read through, uh, as you get to verse 38, as you read it, you shouldn't say, wow, David can take care of business. David is so courageous. That's not at all what the writer wants you to think. The writer wants you to think, wow, God is so faithful, faithful to send David to this point, faithful to have prepared David to face lions and bears up until this point and actually um, give him victory over these things so that when he looks at Goliath, he says, God, help me uh, defeat these animals. Surely God can help me defeat this man like the Lord has been faithful. That, so that brings us to number three, which is the Lord has been faithful and trustworthy in previous experiences in his life. So we can trust him to be faithful in major events or trials as well today, which means for us, it's the same, right? If the Lord has been faithful in our lives, and if you're a believer in Christ, faithful in the most important thing in your life, namely your salvation, if God, if you can trust God and he's been faithful to deliver you from the clutches of Satan, sin and death and hell and to usher you into forgiveness of sin and one day ultimately heaven. If he's taking care of that, then the other things that are going on in your life, you can certainly trust him. He's been faithful here to bring David through these experiences so that he can be the person that will bring them salvation. Faithful to send him in this unexpected way, but also faithful to even as he's delivering Israel to give great encouragement to Israel. Which brings us to 38. Um, and it shows us just a glimpse of uh, how poor of a king Saul is and ultimately how great of a king David will be. Look at this. Then Saul clothed, clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I can't go with these things. I've not tested them. So David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch and a sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So here, King Saul, unwilling to fight the battle on his own, tries to dress David, the future king, to go fight his battle for him. Praise the Lord. We don't have a King Jesus that is unable to fight the battle on his own. Instead, he steps in and fights the ultimate battle for us. King Jesus 
stepped in like David, unlike King Saul, he steps in like David and defeats our enemies for us. And it helps us see just how poor of a king Saul is. Saul was bigger. Saul had fought more. Saul should be there, but he's not. He's given it to this young man, David, to go do this. And so David, as it says, took his staff and his, his, uh, and his smooth stones. He took his sticks and stones with him and he's ready to go bake some bones. Um, anyway, John liked it. So anyway, verse 40, uh, then he took his, uh, he took these things and he went off to the Philistine and to approach the Philistine. Um, some commentaries say that he took five smooth stones because he heard Goliath had four brothers. I think that's nonsense. I don't find any commentary that really, uh, that points to that. But Matthew Henry has a good quote here as we step into verse 40, uh, realizing that, uh, David has confidence, but he helps us understand exactly what kind of confidence and why he has this confidence. Matthew Henry says, by this, it appeared that his confidence was purely, I mean, look what he has in his hand, a staff and some rocks. And he's going to fight someone bigger than Shaquille O'Neal. And he's going with a staff and some rocks. So Henry uh, rightly notes, by this, it has appeared that his confidence was purely in the power of God. And not in any, any sufficiency of his own. And that now at length, he <clears throat> who put it to his heart to fight the Philistine was put, it, was put into his head exact, exactly the weapons that he was going to use. So uh, God was the one that put it into his heart to go fight against this Philistine because he knew that God was with him. And God also told him to take these things with you. I want you to take a staff and some rocks so that whenever he wins... Everybody's going to be able to say, <laughs> it must have been God. It must have been God because you, you couldn't do this on your own. Um, so he didn't need the armor that Saul was trying to give him. Ultimately, he just needed God. So when we get to verse 40, um, humanly speaking, we all should be thinking this. And I know you are because you're awesome and smart. Um, <laughs> ultimately, we should be thinking this right here. Humanly speaking, David has no chance right now to win. Like from all outward appearances, David is going to get smashed down. He is going to get destroyed by this guy. Humanly speaking, it's all over. He's going to walk out there. Goliath is going to destroy him and that's it. Um, and in the same way, humanly speaking, as Jesus was on the cross and it says he uttered out a loud, loud cry and breathed his last and Jesus cried out and yielded up his spirit from all outward appearances. Whenever he dies on the cross and the serpent has bruised the heel, Genesis three fifteen. from all outward appearances, Jesus had no, no chance of winning as the Israelites were there, as they all saw Jesus die on the cross and get put in the grave in that particular moment, just like in verse 40, humanly speaking, they should be thinking to themselves, what's well, over. I mean, David's going out there. He's going to get, he's going to get destroyed and that's it. The Philistines are going to take us. Jesus just died on the cross and he's dead in the, in the tomb. Well, that's it. Feeling the weight of that, I think is important to understand just how amazing the resurrection is. Now, this is just a, this is uh, 
it might feel tangential, but still related. It's just a fun theology practice to make sure that we all understand what's going on in that moment. So and I can remember in church history, uh, my professor, he was one of those that, that liked to really make you feel dumb. And so he, I'm not allowed to say dumb, sorry kids, made you not feel not smart. And so he would ask a question about Jesus dying. Uh, and so he has, he has this idea, is like when Jesus died on the cross and he went to the tomb, what happened? And so we have to remember... Uh, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And so whenever he's both of these together, um, 100% God, 100% man, and we say that Jesus died and was put into the tomb, his humanity, his humanity is what what died. His deity didn't die. He's still 100% God and 100% man, and his humanity died. But he... He was still alive in a sense in his deity because Hebrews 1, 3, he has to uphold the world by the word of his power. In his humanity, he died, but in his deity, he's still alive. But, but still, he, there he is dead in the tomb. And what God did is um, God the Father brought him back to life in his humanity. And now he still lives forever as 100% God and 100% man in heaven. But in this particular moment, from all appearances, David is going to get destroyed. When, da- when Jesus died and was in the tomb for three days, we think it's all over until in his humanity, he's raised back from the dead and then he comes out of the tomb. When we see that, we, we say, well, that was, that's the most unexpected outcome ever. I mean, raised from the dead, not just for a short time and then die again, but raised from the dead eternally, never to die again, ruling and reigning now as the God man, the savior forever. That's totally unexpected. And in that same kind of resurrection unexpected, this is in a lower key. This is a shadow. This is what's going to happen where something totally unexpected is going to happen. As we go into here, verse 41, David's going to defeat Goliath. But first we get to see Goliath's berating here. He, he has more trash to talk. In verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. You can just imagine Goliath's dismay. Representative warfare, bring out your best. And he walks out and all of a sudden (laughs) little David walks out and he's like, what? Are you kidding me? Am I like a dog here? This is what he says. 41 with his shield bear in front of him. The Philistine took a look and saw David. He disdained him for he was just a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Ultimately, come over here, little, little fella. I'm going to take care of you real quick and I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to feed all your flesh to all the birds. That's how bad I'm going to kill you. Well, that's Goliath doing the trash talk. But 45 through 47, David is also going to do some trash talk. Very few of us will ever have an opportunity to get to actually do like real trash talk for God. Um, but David gets this and I say, it's maybe one of the most epic trash talks in the Bible. It's, it's pretty amazing. 45 through 47. And also, um, ultimately it's a prophetic word Now it comes to pass really fast, but it's a prophetic word that he's going to say, representing God, speaking on behalf of God to Israel. This is what he says to him. Uh, he, he basically takes Goliath's little thing and ups it like significantly. And it's pretty awesome. Um, then David said to the Philistine, 
you come to me like he's because he's mocking him about coming at him with sticks. He goes, well, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you. And this is where it's awesome because he shows the faith that he has in God. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Basically, he's like, it doesn't matter if I'm coming with a stick or anything because I have God like it doesn't matter what I'm going to use. You're going to die today, Goliath, because I have God coming with me. And then he says this, this day, the Lord will deliver you in my hand. I will strike you down and I'm going to cut off your head, Goliath. And more so, I will give the dead bodies. Now, you said you're going to take my dead body and feed it. I'm going to take the dead bodies of all of your army and feed it to the birds and the beasts of the field. That's where he says, uh, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know. That's key. All the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. When he says this, this is why it's prophetic. This war that's happening between the Philistines and Israel is no longer just geographical, trying to figure out who gets lines. It's now theological. God is saying through David, Everybody on the earth is going to know who God is. This battle's not just who gets who gets lines and land. Instead, this battle's about everybody on the earth knowing who God is. It's theological. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know, and here's the theme again. Now we're picking into it, uh, walking into it, and this assembly may know that the Lord saves. Not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Epic trash talk. Basically, you're going to go down, Goliath, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be fast uh, and you're going to get it. And so he tells him all this. When the Philistine arose and came, drew near to meet David. I love this. David ran quickly to the battle line. So that's, that's massive confidence, not in himself, but in God. Massive confidence. He ran towards the Philistine and David put in his hand the bag and took out the stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehand and he fell on the and he fell on his face to the ground. Just like that done. Like that was pretty fast. No long drawn out kind of fight scene. Right. It's just like, whoop, boom, dead. There it is. And then we get to 50 and 51, which are pretty funny. 50 and all the kids books. 51. Not really in any kids' books. So here it is in 50. So David prevailed on the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck down the Philistine and killed him. And then you, here's where we get to know kids' books. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took the sword, drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistine saw with a shout and pursuit. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. So uh, that part doesn't make it to the kids' books of him sawing off the head of the Goliath and showing everybody. Um, but maybe it should. Maybe it should. Um, the older kids, at least. Uh, but basically, here's what happened, right? Victory is now Israel's. This, uh, th- there's, the Philistines see this and they, fl- and they flee. They're, they're on. Once Goliath, their champion's uh, dead, they all flee and they run away in the same way, obviously, as Jesus has defeat, defeated Satan's sin and death. They run away from Jesus. And here's where it gets awesome. Notice this, what happens here in 52. Um, the men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. So they all of a sudden have become extremely 
uh, emboldened and confident. Now, I think I skipped over number four, so let's make sure that we have that. So uh, you can go ahead and put up number four. As David, uh, backtracking just for number four, 38 through 47, where David has this amazing confidence. Uh, as David has this confidence, there is deep confidence that we can, as followers of Christ, know that he is God and he is strong and he, he alone can defeat our foe. So that's backtracking. Sorry, I meant to put it up earlier. But as David sees this amazing confidence, we also can have this amazing confidence in Christ. Uh, Bring this back to verse 52. Now, let's notice the difference here between the people of Israel. You have um, previously, as, they, as David walks up there, you have Israel, all of them standing there, scared to death because of all the things that were being said to them. Uh, Israel's scared to death. But then once you get to 52, once Goliath dies, it says, All the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. And then they... They go after them. I mean, they have amazing confidence. The difference is once uh, Goliath is killed, they're no longer shaking, but now they're confident, ready to be warriors to go feed, go defeat all of um, the Philistines. In the same way in the meta narrative, that should be the same for us. We might have prior to salvation been weak and scared, realizing that we're slaves to sin um, Scared to think that we could ever accomplish anything for God. But because our great warrior Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death with the same way that the Israel arises and goes and fights, that we should in the same way now. We, we're not fighting. We're, we're getting up and we're going to fight the great commission war to go out into this lost nation with great confidence, just like they are, ready to go out and say, okay, God, if, if you have defeated our greatest foe, then we can go forward in the Great Commission and obey you by teaching disciples, um, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you, that you have said that they should be, that, that you have commanded. Um, with the same uh, confidence that they, they get up and go forward, we can as well. Which brings us to this kind of last thing. So they go and they, defy, they go and fight the Philistines, they defeat them, and they come back. Uh, when they come back, I'm in 18.6 right now. When they come back, they're coming home. David returned um, from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines. Songs of joy with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. David has struck down his ten thousands. The main thing I want you to see here is whenever uh, Saul and David came back to Israel and gave them the news, Goliath has been killed, the people celebrated. The people celebrated. Good news has happened because our foe has been destroyed. And so we should celebrate. That's what we should do. So number five, as Israel praised David for his victory, the church must praise Jesus for his victory. When you see FF and verse things, that just means start at verse. It means basically it means and following. So verse six just means start at verse six and the things that come after it, verse six and following. Um, so here, the main thing that we see, though, is there's great celebration on the people of Israel when they hear about the victory that David has brought them. That's in the narrative. So in the meta narrative, the same should be for us. There should be great celebration in the church when we think on this great victory that Jesus has brought for us by dying for us on the cross and defeating Satan, sin and death. And notice in here, they're dancing. They're so excited that they're literally Dancing with tambourines and songs of joy. I want to read uh, a text to help us understand what I think um, this should look like. 
I don't know if you knew this. Um, if you grew up in a Baptist church, this might make you nervous. But the Bible does tell us that we should dance. We, it does. Um, it says this. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. It's going to list a lot of instruments. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine. And dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is Psalm 150. And so... I think that the spirit of what we need to understand from 150 is this. Uh, does it mean that during worship songs that we're just going to start having like a strobe light fall down and it's going to go around and there's going to be a big dance floor in the middle. We're going to clear the chairs and have a mosh pit. I don't think it means that, right? Um, obviously. I think it means this though. With the way that the Lord has wired you, whenever you think of something happening in your life, uh, something great that happens in your life and you feel uh, like an external kind of exclamation of joy, uh, whatever it is, your, your kid scored a soccer goal for the very first time. You don't go, very good, son. You go, woo, yes. Or if your team wins something, or if your friend that you've been talking to said they just finally led their friend to Christ that they, and the two of you have been praying about it for a long time, you probably don't just don't go, oh, that's great. That's great to hear. I'm so happy for you. Like usually God has wired us as beings that we show external acts of joy. We have, um, we have exclamations that are public. And I think what he means is this. Um, when we hear these kinds of things that happen in our life that cause external outbursts of joy to awesome things, you know, all these things are great. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and saved us from our sin is even greater. So how much greater then should be our external outbursts and exclamations of joy? I think that's the point that he's trying to make in Psalm 150. When he says, praise the Lord. He has done amazing things for us, namely saved us from all of our sin. And so when we think on that and when we publicly sing together, yes, we still have 1 Corinthians 15. It's got to be orderly and all that kind of stuff. I get all that. But still... It should cause us to want to um, externally celebrate because he's been so good to us in saving us. So, number five, as David prays, uh, as Israel prays David for his victory, the church must praise Jesus for his victory. And I think it, it means that we don't, ju- don't just in this church of introverts say, God, you're so good. Thank you. I don't think that's what it means. I just don't think, I think there should be a greater um, movement of us of, of singing and celebration in our, in our church services and, you know, outside of the walls as well. So whenever we read first uh, Samuel 17, um, I'm taking a step back now in, in, a, in a way of conclusion. Whenever we read this, how do we, how do we think through first uh, Samuel 17? What is it that we should take from this? First, as I've already said, um, don't read this and say, well, I'm going to step into the shoes of David and walk through this chapter and kind of think of myself as David as I go through this chapter. That's not the way to read it. None of us are David. Jesus is David. Jesus is the one that um, is being foreshadowed by, by the life of David. Instead, we're Israel. That's who we are. We're shaken in our boots, scared to death at the Philistine. And then the Savior comes in and takes care of business. And now we are, by the power of the Spirit, confident to go forward 
and, and, and fight the battle for the Lord. Um, fight the battle just means nothing violent, right? It means go tell people about Jesus. We're Israel. We're also like Eliab. <clears throat> we're, uh, we're prideful and think we understand things and we're, we say sinful things. We're also like Saul, having no idea what to do, but waiting on our Savior King to come fight the battle for us and rescue us. Goliath is the big giant of sin that needs to be slayed that we can do nothing about. And, G- and David's the one who comes and slays the giant, just like Jesus is the one who comes and steps in and defeats our greatest foe, uh, the, the, the foe of sin. But we don't need to read too much into it like David because he's still a man. He still quit fighting uh, and stayed home and, and sinned and had this uh, whole episode with Uriah and Bathsheba. And he does finally repent when Nathan comes to him. But the story is just ultimately not about David either. It's ultimately pointing us to Jesus. And so uh, the point of all this is to help us during this Christmas season to realize that as we look to Christ and celebrate what he's done for us and how he has defeated sin for us, that there should be a marked difference now in the way that we live. A marked difference as believers that the response to the fact that Jesus came and died for us and rescued us, the response to that should be for us. Um, and in the same kind of response that they have in 52, it should be for us rejoicing and willing to go out to all the corners of the earth to tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing word that you've given to us in First Samuel 17 as the offspring of, continues to be unfolded through the Old Testament and points us to the Messiah, Jesus. And I thank you for all the stories of the Old Testament and how they ultimately um, point us to the good news of Jesus, that he's the one who came and died for us. And so uh, I pray for us this morning as we think on these things, that our hearts would be moved um, by this, that it wouldn't just be now a familiar message that we've heard uh, every seven days and so We're so familiar with it, it doesn't land on us and just amaze us. Um, Forgive us, Lord, if that's the case. But God, I do pray that as we think on this amazing message that Christ died for us, um, fought the battle for us whenever we didn't deserve it, willingly gave his life and resurrected thereby, given us um, defeat not just over our sin, but over death itself. God, that we would just be amazed and that this Christmas season would be filled with rejoicing because our King has come. And now we eagerly wait for the second coming of our King to set everything right. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.